So uh, thank you all for bearing through all of our internet issues. I, I swear that everything works fine Tuesdays all day. And then at 6.30, everything goes crazy, which is frustrating, but we'll, uh, we'll suffer through it together. So what does peace mean to you? That's the question for you to be thinking about and post a reply to, and we'll be talking about your answers here in a bit. So uh, again, welcome to the second week of Advent. Um, I have been leaning hard into this season, um, all the parts of the season that I love, the, the music, the decorations, the mood, but as hard as I try, Advent just does not feel the same this year. We're all in this holding pattern, waiting for our everyday world to be safe again. And while that's hard in many ways, uh, that actually prepares us to engage in Advent uh, maybe better or more fully than in previous years. We're all stuck in this liminal space, um, forcing us to wait together. Advent is a season marked by what we're all too familiar with uh, <laughs> this year, waiting, waiting in darkness, hoping for the light. Um, we're all waiting for our world to be made right after such a crushing year on so many fronts. But as, cha as challenging and as difficult and painful as this year has been, as not right as our world seems these days, uh, the world that Jesus was born into was, was far bleaker for the people of God. At the time of Jesus's birth, uh, Israel, uh, we talked about this last week, Israel has been under brutal Roman rule for about 60 years. They've survived at least two major uprisings in which, sorry, in which the Romans and the Roman installed Jewish uh, king slaughtered tens of thousands of Jewish people, um, sometimes including women and children, and then burned entire cities to the ground, which is ironic because this is all during what Rome called the Pax Romana or the peace of Rome. Rome prided itself on bringing peace to the entire world. But the peace that Roman rule brought was peace through uh, domination, subjugation, and oppression in order to control everyone. It was violence rebranded as peace. This is the world that Jesus was born into, a world of coercion, domination, um, and violence masquerading as peace. And the, the Jewish culture that Jesus was born into um, was heavily divided in how to handle their broken world. The people by and large found themselves in one of four major factions, each with their own responses to God and strategies for coping with the challenges and hardships that they were subjected to. One of these groups is the zealots. We've actually talked about the zealots just a few weeks ago during the first few weeks of our generosity series this month, but we're going to get into them a little bit deeper tonight. To fully understand the zealots, we need to go back to something that happened around 170 years before Jesus was born. And actually to really get a, a complete idea of what's going on, we have to go back a little further. So hang with me during this little history lesson, it's all going to tie together. Um, after Alexander the Great died, the Greek empire fractured into multiple um, smaller empires led by his generals who all fought each other for control over the old Greek empire. The two main empires that, that uh, arise out of the civil war are the Ptolemaic and Seleucid empires. And Israel sits geographically like right on the border between these two. There's an empire above them and an empire below them. And they're fighting each other with Israel caught in between them. Uh, so they're basically ground zero and, and Israel is constantly flipping back and forth between being a part of the Ptolemaic and Seleucid empire, depending on who had won the latest battle. Fast forward to 167 BC. 
Israel is under the rule of the Seleucid empire led by a guy named Antiochus the fourth, who was really nasty and probably insane. Uh, he sends troops into Jerusalem, into the temple and uh, forces or attempts to force the priests to make sacrifices to Greek gods. He tries to force the Jewish priests to make sacrifices to the Greek gods. One of the priests refuses. He kills the soldier that's overseeing the sacrifice and then kills the other priests who were going to acquiesce. Long story short, this priest flees to the countryside with his five sons and together they establish this growing rebellion um, that continually engages in like guerrilla warfare with the Seleucids and any collaborating Jews. Uh, their rebellion eventually gains enough people and, and enough victories to completely drive the Seleucid empire out of Israel once and, and completely. And Israel is once again, a sovereign nation, at least for the next 80 years until Rome comes along. Uh, this rebellion came to be known as the Maccabean revolt. Um, because one of the priest's sons who ends up being the leader of the whole thing was nicknamed Maccabeus, which means the hammer. And if you're going to have a nickname, <laughs> the hammer is not a bad way to go. Um, Hanukkah, which starts this Friday is actually a part of uh, a celebration of this revolt. Um, once the Maccabees recaptured the temple from the Seleucids, it had been completely defiled by them. And so they, the, the Maccabees had to reconsecrate it. They had to rededicate it. There's a bit more to the story than this, but Hanukkah, uh, which means dedication is basically the celebration of this eight night long rededication of the temple. So that's the Maccabees, a violent rebellion and revolution that successfully freed Israel from an Imperial enemy. Fast forward to six AD, about 173 years later, and the zealots are founded. And they're founded with the Maccabees as their inspiration. Their kind of battle cry or slogan is remember the Maccabees. Uh, they wanted to do to Rome what the Maccabees did the, to the Seleucids, just violently drive them out. The Zealots were known for being unflinchingly, uh, violently hatred. Uh, they were known for their unflinchingly violent hatred towards Rome and, and any and all Jews who were collaborating with or were in any way sympathetic to the empire. At the height of their influence, uh, they would walk around public gatherings with little daggers hidden in their cloaks and would just assassinate anyone that they thought was a Roman sympathizer, which is kind of insane. Uh, like the Essenes, they were extremely religious. They were extremely motivated by purity, especially the purity of Israel as a nation. But unlike the Essenes, zealots believed that it was up to them to establish the reign of God. And they fought to do so through violently opposing everyone that they deemed to be their enemy. Jesus interacted with zealots a number of times. In fact, as we've talked about one, at least one of Jesus's disciples, Simon was a member of this violent extremist faction throughout Jesus's life and beyond the zealots were an increasingly powerful force in Israel, eventually leading the entire country to rebel against Rome in 66 AD, um, which ended with the complete conquest of Israel, the destruction of the temple and the mass, a mass suicide of all the remaining zealots in 73 AD. It's a really terrible story. It did not end well. So the zealots looked at uh, the tactics of Rome and thought, this works for Rome. It worked for the Maccabees and it should work for us too. And so rather than uh, continuing to wait on God, who seemed to be 
taking his time and, and making good on his promise to bring peace. The zealots chose to solve uh, the violence that they received from Rome with more violence. They chose to deal with the very real struggles and trials and challenges and hardships and suffering of their everyday existence by engaging in violence against all that they deemed to be enemies. Now, like with the Essenes last week, I'm not sitting here 2000 years later, judging uh, these first century Jewish people for the strategies that they employed to, to cope with and deal with the, the very real and relentless sufferings and atrocities that they witnessed. I have no idea how I would react if my friends and my family and my people were being abused and killed by a brutal, careless, ruthless foreign empire. But I, I can tell you it wouldn't be good. Um, I have this whole part of my brain that I didn't know about this dad part of my brain that, that um, I didn't know existed. That kind of goes off the rails. If I think that my daughter is, is in danger in any way, I can't imagine living every day with her being in very real danger from a foreign conquering empire. Honestly, I think it wouldn't take much for me to start to think that a violent opposition might not be so bad. Because when we're pushed to our limit, when we're backed into a corner, it's, very, it's a very normal human response to lash out in violence. I'm sure you've heard of uh, fight, flight, or freeze, right? These are, our, uh, these, are the usu- these, are, these are usually our instinctual reactions to being attacked, uh, to being under extreme stress. Where the Essenes chose flight, the Zealots chose fight. And I can't, I can't say I blame them. Looking back this year, I can see times when I resorted to cope with feeling helpless and trapped by attempting to dominate and to be violent, not physically, but definitely with my thoughts and, and sometimes even with my words. I didn't go out and hit anyone that I know of, <laughs> but I feel like I'd remember that. Uh, but I have to tell you this summer, I wanted to hit someone maybe more than any time in my life before. Um, it was all sort of a perfect storm situation. Uh, I mean, it's 2020, you all have had probably similar circumstances, but obviously there was lockdowns, uh, which was enough to drive anyone insane. But on top of that, I was feeling, um, there's some stuff going on that made me feel like I was being attacked personally and vocationally. Um, and it felt like our entire society was crumbling and falling apart. And I found myself coping with that stress at times by, by lashing out. And I know that I'm not alone in feeling that way because there were weeks of violent and destructive clashes throughout cities in America all throughout the summer. And even more countless virtual uh, wars between people willing to say the most violent and destructive things to each other online. When things felt completely out of control, many attempted to bring about order by, by imposing their will through coercion and domination, through violence just like the zealots. But the birth of Jesus, uh, the arrival of God incarnate extends to these zealots, this, this group of religious extremists, the promise of peace and not the kind of peace that Rome achieved, which was peace through violence and sub subjugation and domination in order to control everyone to their liking, but peace through reconciliation and restoration in order to free everyone. Peace. The birth of Jesus was the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promise for peace. So what does peace mean to you? Let's, let's look through some of your answers. I caught a couple before. Um, 
Peace for me is moving toward increasing wholeness and flourishing. Um, when I feel at peace, I don't find myself double or triple or quadruple guessing a decision or circumstance. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Um, Nikki, I'm right there with you. Uh, for me, peace is often when my emotions aren't all consuming. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that kind of feels like Brandy. It feels like you're reading my mail. Um, if you want peace, you don't talk to your friends. You talk to your enemies. That's an interesting thought. For me, peace is being able to live out um, the divine reflection of love, despite circumstance. Many prominent examples have occurred while Royal family kids camp. Yeah, totally. I feel that one. Um, I find peace in moments of creation where I can feel the presence of divinity in the process. Yeah. When God is near, it feels like peace is near. I find peace when things feel in order. I'm able to take care of myself, fitness and nutrition. My family's healthy and well, my, my needs are met and there isn't conflict happening in my life. Yes. 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 Uh, normally when we think of peace, we think of the absence of conflict or, or the cessation of tension or turmoil, no more fighting, no more war. Right. But peace is so much more than this, which, which many of you are, are hitting on peace. Isn't merely the cessation of conflict. Peace is uh, a state of well-being, of wholeness of hu of, of harmony in all of one's relationships. In the Old Testament, uh, peace or shalom was a God-given state of wholeness that was a, a return to original goodness, to the original goodness of creation. A person at peace was someone who was living out of who God created them to be. Jesus' birth, his life, his death and resurrection inaugurated a reign of peace seen through the reconciliation that he, that he makes possible and brings between God and humanity which restores us to that original goodness before sin ever entered the picture, before disorder, before domination, before violence. All of this makes it possible for us to reconcile with one another, spreading peace. This is what the birth of Jesus started uh, 2000 years ago. But all this time later, our, our world is still not right. <laughs> we're still waiting for the full consummation of this ultimate peace. These days, our world, our culture, whether, um, whether online or in the real world seems to be more than willing to be violent towards one another, emotionally, mentally, and often physically. What does it mean to be people of peace in a world of violence? What does it mean to be people waiting on God to fully bring about the peace promised through Jesus? We really have two, two choices uh, like Rome, like the zealots, we can try to take matters into our own hands and, and force a peace through violence and domination in order to control people to our liking, or we can join God to pursue a peace through reconciliation and restoration in order to free everyone to be who God created them to be. The writers of the New Testament talk about peace all over the place. And one instance that caught my eye this week um, is in Romans 12, where Paul writes this. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. 
If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's righteous justice. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, Paul is about to quote from Proverbs here. If your enemy is hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give, give them something to drink. In doing this, you, reap, you heap burning coals on their head, which sounds violent. Uh, that phrase, heap burning coals on their head, essentially means here, your surprising generosity will awaken their conscience. And then Paul concludes by writing, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I love that. I love that so much. This is what it looks like to be people of peace waiting for peace. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Bless, don't curse. Laugh with those who laugh, weep with those who weep. As best as you can, live at peace with everyone. Don't seek revenge. Don't take matters into your own hands, but wait for God. Wait for God. Wait for God to bring about the fullness of, of the peace of, of uh, the fullness of peace, the, the restoration, the return to original goodness that he promised. Wait for peace. In the meantime, while you wait, be people of peace, be people of reconciliation, love your enemies, awaken the conscience of an unconscious and hostile world through your surprising acts of generosity. That's what Paul is writing about here. What Rome, uh, the zealots and many before and since have, have gotten wrong is that they thought that violence could result in peace, but violence only begets violence. God calls us to be different to wait on God, to be ministers of reconciliation, to be people of peace, waiting for peace. Before Jesus is born, um, God tells a man named Zechariah, Jesus's uncle, uh, that Jesus, God with us is on his way. There's a lot more to this story, but Zechariah's response is this beautiful song prayer that we read at the end of Luke chapter one. And I want to close tonight with an excerpt from this prayer. It goes like this. Blessed be God who has turned to his people and saved us and set us free. Age after age, you proclaimed by the lips of your holy prophets that you would deliver us calling to mind your solemn covenant. This was the promise that you made to rescue us and free us from fear. In your tender compassion, you have sent the morning sun from heaven to shine on us in our darkness, even in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the paths of peace. Even in the shadow of death, Jesus has come to shine a light in the darkness and guide our feet into the paths of peace. May you follow that light. This Advent, may we relinquish, relinquish violence and instead cherish reconciliation as we wait for peace. Will you pray with me? God, waiting is difficult. Waiting for peace in a world of violence, in a world forcing its own way is, is even harder. God, I pray that you would find us in that tension of being people of peace while waiting for your ultimate peace. God, I pray that we would, we would find ways to, um, to not give in the to the temptation to force our own way, to force our will, but instead would rest in the wholeness and harmony 
that reconciliation with you and others brings. Even in the face of, of violence toward us, I pray that you would sustain us as people of peace waiting for your peace. Amen.